Well, good morning, Oak Grove Church, and those of you who are watching on live stream, it's good to have you this morning. Uh, we are sort of deep into our winter events. I'm glad it warmed up a little bit for everybody. It uh, got a little nippy there. Uh, we'd even acknowledge that as Canadians. It got a little nippy, but uh, it, uh, it's good to be here. I, before we step into the text, I do want to bring you update on a couple of things. We have been uh, talking about Ross Pilkington and Anchin and getting them here. Well, We've had, uh, I can't remember where we left it off, but anyway, just to do a quick summary, we have finally got uh, our declaration statement from the IRS. We submitted that to immigration. Uh, they approved his R1 status, so that was a huge move forward in terms of what we were doing. And uh, we've got the official documents for that, and so we've sent that on to the Pilkingtons, uh, they had one, they had to get new birth certificates. They, uh, you, most of us are used to the short ones and they needed the long version of it. It's kind of like passports. They say, you know, this could take up to six months to get it, but it actually, for them, it showed up in two weeks. So they have scheduled an appointment with the consulate. They, originally it was March the 16th, uh, but because they got their birth certificates, they've got all the documents they need, so it's scheduled for February the 28th of this month. So we're getting there, wow. Uh, once we get past that, and that's where at that consulate meeting they'll get the official thumbs up on their visa. I mean, technically they could say no, but we're anticipating very much that they'll give thumbs up on that. And then it should take a week or two to actually get the official visas uh, in hand, and then there's nothing really preventing them from coming over other than that they're, they both work for companies that in their contract said they have to give 30 days notice uh, before they can exit their workplace. Now, that being said, they've even said, we work for really nice people. They might even shorten it, but obviously the idea is to find a replacement before they jettison. Hey, we've waited a year, another 30 days probably won't kill us in that process. But the exciting thing is that we should have them here, we, in theory, end of March, 1st of April, and we're starting to plan to onboard them, so we'll give you some updates on that. So. Yay, Lord's still alive and well. We're, it's, it's good. And if they've done their normal thing, they've often watched us on live stream. I don't know if they're able to do it this morning, but uh, they all cheered for you if you're watching for us. If not, then just forget everything I said. Anyway, in any event, uh, it's super good news, and it's starting to move very well, and so we're excited about that. But let me invite you to bow with me before we step into the text this morning. Father, thank you for your goodness to us and for your activity in our lives. Father, we don't really have to sit around much and wait to see you doing something. You are a God who is constantly, passionately, and ongoing, active in our lives and in the circumstances we live in. Sometimes that's hard for us to perceive because we're deeply distracted by the stuff that goes on in life and that happens. But Father, this morning I pray you'd remind us that you're a God that is present even in the most difficult circumstances that we face and that uh, as we learn to live in this deep, abiding, intimate relationship with you, we know that we have our lives are secure in the palm of your hand, that you are ones that give us significance regardless of how we measure that on a human basis. And we just thank you for the things that you continue to do in our life. I pray you give us a godly perspective on our life, that we would see life through the eyes of your spirit and that we would understand the eternal significance of what you are doing. Uh, Father, we also thank you for the progress that we've made for Ross and Anchin and just pray your fingerprints would be upon that meeting on the 28th. 
that we could move this forward and kind of get things settled, and uh, we've been looking forward to this for such a long time, and we thank you that you have been faithful in all of it. We entrust the day to you. We give you thanks for the thoughts that will be in our minds as we allow your scriptures to sift through our own journey this morning and ask that your spirit will continue to take truth and rivet it to the realities that are in our life and in our families, and we thank you for this in Christ's name. Amen. I was reading a story this week that before I read the text, I want to uh, start with that. A gal named Shauna Pilot had a husband who was a little bit dysfunctional. He was uh, Saturday night, and she was looking after their little one, and he was uh, out late. She had known that there had been some unfaithfulness going on, but what her real concern was is that one morning she'd get a call from the police that he had died because of his reckless behavior. It bothered me naturally, she said, but I also worried that he would end up dead, and I was at the end of my rope, and I was desperate. As she was angrily washing the dishes, she had the TV on, and she was listening to a man who was talking that caught her attention, and he happened to be uh, a pastor from a particular church. Uh, She uh, not only was listening to him, but there was something that captivated her heart, and she started listening to his words, and he was not only funny and warm, but he spoke about things that had spiritual significance, and all of a sudden, her heart just seemed captivated by this. And in fact, it was so captivated, she just started crying. And she wasn't quite sure what was going on, but she suddenly realized that when he gave the invitation to come and visit our church, she just literally felt this huge compulsion she had to go. Her initial motivation in going there was that she was so desperate she was just going to see if she could get enough encouragement to tell her husband that, to kick him out of the house, to get rid of him because he's been so reckless and detached from the family that she was basically worthless. But when she got there, they gave an invitation to respond to the gospel and somehow that resonated with her and she went forward and she made a personal commitment to receive Christ. Several weeks later, her husband, in all the chaos, saw something different, and something affected him, and he decided to go with her. Uh, And as they began to go through this four or five weeks in a row, he recognized his own need for Christ, and at one point went forward and accepted Christ. In all of that, he came home uh, and started attending Promise Keepers events and suddenly realized the weight and the magnitude of his sin and in all of that, reaffirmed his commitment to Christ. What was encouraging was the day that Rick came home and told his wife, I can be the husband that you deserve now. The thing that is both exciting and challenging is that only when things got absolutely desperate did something change. Only when they got to the end of their rope that they was the catalyst that actually moved them to do something different than they were doing. It's remarkable in our lives how much we're willing to tolerate and bear with. No matter how much weight is on our shoulders, no matter how much dysfunction we're dealing with, no matter how much brokenness that we're trying to manage, it's staggering how much people are carrying around in their life. In spite of the desperation, they still at times won't turn to Christ. And it it creates this unusual event in our life where we are suffocating and drowning in all of the weight and we are completely desperate and yet still Christ isn't very attractive. In the text that we're gonna read this morning, we're in Mark chapter five, we are looking at a story that we're gonna come back and talk about three weeks in a row, we're doing this again. 
Uh, the reason is, is this narrative is way too long for me to just blow through it in one Sunday. And so we're going to come back and look at it this morning. The title of my text is the idea of desperate times, desperate choices. And what we're going to see is two individuals who are faced with circumstances in life that have made them desperate. And it's that desperation, desperation that people experience that leaves them open to the hope of the gospel. And we will see as we read through here, starting in Mark chapter 5, verse 21, a little bit of their story. We're not going to read the whole thing this morning, but we're going to get a snapshot of at least their circumstances and what that means. When Jesus had crossed again in the boat over uh, the Sea of Galilee to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, in other words, Jairus seeing Jesus, fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she might be made well and live. And Jesus went with him, and a great crowd followed and thronged around him. Verse 24, and he went with him, and a great crowd followed him and thronged about him, and there was a woman who had a discharge or an issue of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under the physicians, and had spent all she had, and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard of reports about Jesus, and came up behind him in the crowd, and touched his garment, for she said, if I touch even his garment, I can be made well. You know, it is unfortunate that it has to take that for us to change. Even as Christians, when we think life is basically okay, or we are trying to manage it, we won't change. And it really comes down to, especially in our circumstances in life, that only when things get extremely desperate to the point where we're breaking, that we're often motivated to make choices that we would never make otherwise. It's this tension between faith and fear. We are sometimes slammed by the circumstances of life or the relationships that we're in or the brokenness or the abuse or the weight of hopelessness that comes with not being able to control people or circumstances, and we carry these things in unusual ways. And so there always tends to be this remarkable sense of resilience that we have, but it, it ceases to become life after a while. It becomes this enduring sense of survival where I'm barely getting from one day to the next, and I'm doing everything that I can to white-knuckle myself, at least internally, through the circumstances that I'm living. And yet, in spite of all that, when someone comes up to us and says, how's it going, the usual answer is, I'm fine. The danger is, is there's these storms that are often brewing inside of a lot of us that we won't admit to or won't acknowledge. We often have lived with this idea that if I'm a person of faith, then I should be able to handle this. In fact, we'll deal with this, at least mention it, is that one of the, I believe, unbiblical things that have often gone around in Christianity is God will never allow anything to happen to you that you can't handle. And it's created this dysfunctional theology that if I'm truly spiritual and faithful, it doesn't matter how bad life gets, I should be able to handle it. Now, there's obviously a grain of truth in some of that, but there's a whole bunch of misunderstanding that goes with it as well. And as we begin to embark on this, I simply want to point you to some people that had overwhelming circumstances in their life, coming from very different parts of life, and they were desperate. 
And that desperation was the catalyst for them to do something they'd never done before, and that is to seek out Christ. And I don't know where you're at this morning in your personal journey or what circumstances you're facing in life or what people are in your life, but you might, in the back corner of your mind, regardless of how emotionally you feel it or not, may be feeling really desperate this morning. It might be in the feeling of hopelessness, it might be in the sense of being overwhelmed, it might be a discouragement, there might be some level of depression going on. It may be a lot of different things, and sometimes we've got so used to carrying it, we think that's normal. And I want to encourage you that when we come to Christ, he wants us to take a different pathway. Now, as we look at this, I want you to also notice that desperate times usually reflects the hardness of life. And I've made some really simple statements here that, first of all, life can be unfair. I I don't know about you, and I have not had this particular situation in life, but uh, here is a ruler of the synagogue, a person who has position in the community but has also, to some degree, possibly even a, a, a spiritual status. Of course, the danger with being, having a spiritual status, like a leader, is that you can't show your, your vulnerabilities. If you're really a leader, you gotta sort of shore up a certain spiritual fortitude and resilience that I'm unshakable and I can plow through and I've gotta be a good example and I have to be strong for people. But that's not Jairus at all. He is fighting for the life of his daughter. He is fighting for her life. Now, I don't know if you've ever been a parent that's had to struggle for the life of your kid. Sometimes parents, a child comes as a preemie into the world and they have tremendous physical challenges or they might even, as we experienced in our life when Colleen was gonna be born, were told before she was born that she would probably have Down syndrome. And we were stood back going like, Well, we had no sense that we wouldn't love and accept her. We just had no idea how we were going to deal with it. We had no idea whether we would be good parents or terrible parents when that happened. And fortunately for us, diabetics tend to have false positives on those things, and she came out as normal, kicking and fighting and doing everything else as anyone else would. Sometimes others are not so fortunate. And we look at that sometimes and we go, God, how in the world is this fair? Why did I get stuck with this kind of situation? And then we catch ourselves going, wait a minute, I'm a parent, I need to love my child, and we have these battles in front of us about how unfair life might be because, not only because our kids may not be what we wanted, because all that we really want is something healthy, but sometimes that doesn't happen. But as they grow older, all of a sudden they may take pathways and make choices that create great desperation in their life and create tremendous anxiety and stress in their parents' life. There is hardly anything in life, if you happen to be a parent, that creates more desperation than where your kids are at, especially if they're not healthy. And so Jairus is in a situation where it's, the term literally is little girl, so we aren't told specifically how old she is. I sort of envision kind of like an elementary school kid, one who hasn't got to the age of responsibilities, but she has got some kind of sickness. I make the assumption because it's, it's explicitly told with the woman who has this blood disease I don't know any parent that wouldn't be seeking out the physicians to help their kid if they're this sick. I'm gonna make that assumption in the text. It's not there, so you don't have to if you don't want to, 
but I don't know any parent, if their kids are super sick, wouldn't consult the physicians. In fact, by the time he gets to Jesus, he's saying, Jesus, I need you. You need to come now because my daughter's getting ready to die. The woman is a whole different story, but she's struggling with her own issues. Some have associated this hemorrhage or this blood issue akin to Leviticus chapter 21 or possibly Leviticus 15, which is normally the situations that women face once they had a, a child. And if they had a child, sometimes they could not control the flow of blood and they have some complications with it, and so there was ways that they were supposed to manage that. There's no way to prove that's what the issue is. That seems to be a natural circumstance of life and a, and a possible consequence of it. This is talked about more as of a disease. But the simple fact of the matter is that she has a physical problem that is pretty debilitating. And she has obviously in this context... Uh, because it's an issue of blood, would have other complications. Robert Gulich in his commentary says this, this woman was not only defiled, she defiled anything and anyone she touched. Her illness had left her personally, socially, and spiritually cut off. That can happen, can it? When people get sick or when they struggle, when they have issues, physical, invisible afflictions of the mind, they often get ignored. They often become isolated because people don't know what to do with them. People are not quite sure how to handle them, and so they're left in this sort of isolated desperation with a problem they can't fix, and no one else has been able to help them, and they just absolutely don't know what to do. And I don't know if you've been there in any kind of circumstances, but life can be unfair. I didn't ask for this. I don't deserve it. And it might be something else entirely. Obviously, the circumstances here are, are about physical life and death issues, but the reality sometimes is whether you get fired from a job. The other side is you, your spouse might want to leave you. Some of us find ourselves growing up in an abusive home and so we get the collateral damage and become the very thing that we've hated all of our life. I don't know about you, but life can often be deeply unfair. We can be given things and, and experience things that have nothing to do with our choices but we have to carry the burden. But not only is it a hardship that, that life can be unfair, but it can be hard. Now that may sound like saying the same thing, but I want you to notice that in this process of dealing with this is that here's a man who's been watching his daughter gradually get worse and sick and everyone can tell that she's gonna die. And all you have to do is know what it means to lose a loved one. And you know kind of what it's talking about. Obviously it's different when our parents pass away because as they get older we kind of expect that at some point they won't be with us. When I was started, I've mentioned this story before but I'll never forget it. It was when I was in Leslieville. I, uh, one of the very first funerals I did, well one was a mom who committed suicide and that was pretty difficult. Her kids actually are the ones that came down and found their mom laying in blood, shot herself with a shotgun. One of the other ones that always stick in my mind is the neighbors came across one day and said, hey listen, we've got a teenage girlfriend, I think she was 16, and she got pregnant, wore big sweaters and hid it from her mom till her water broke, went into the hospital, delivered the baby, and the next day it died. So they came to me and they said, listen, we got kind of this dilemma, 
She wants someone to do the funeral and she's asking questions about why things like this happen, but she doesn't want some pastor coming in beating her up because this is her fault. You know, desperation is written all over people's lives. And while we may not see it, there's often this desperation that's turning in the hearts of people because life is not only unfair, but sometimes it's extremely difficult and hard. Because the circumstances that people choose make it difficult. I suspect Jairus had tried physicians and they'd found no way to help her daughter. The woman with the blood disease had sought physician after physician after physician who were happy to take her money and all the treatments that they did made her worse. And these would, desperation, when things happen to us, it would be normal to go see doctors. God has given us the ability to understand biology and all the chemistry that goes on in terms of our bodies and and the developments even now today are unbelievable about the things they can do, but science clearly can't solve all our problems. Medicine can't solve all our issues. They haven't eliminated cancer entirely. They can't deal with so many different things. They can treat it. Pharmaceuticals are able to help mitigate the pain and the suffering at times, but they can't cure people. And this woman not only had taken the normal course of action, but had endured, it's interesting, 12 years of going to see physicians who with all their so-called expertise were making her worse and worse as every day and every week and every year went by. What do you do? I mean, I suspect her desperation would go off the charts, and what made it even worse is that they had literally drained all of her resources. I mean, the text is, is interesting that Mark would tell us that she had spent all her money seeking normal processes and procedures and getting help. Now she is broke, but there's, she's getting worse. And desperation starts sinking in. Is it, what am I going to do? Do I have to live this way the rest of my life? She has no idea how long this will take. Jairus knows that the end is near for his daughter, and there's nothing of that has a greater feeling of hopelessness than watching one of your kids pass away in front of you. And, and obviously the hardship of life means that life can be debilitating. It's not life so much that it is, but it's the circumstances. I don't know how much Jairus is doing in terms of his responsibility as a ruler in the synagogue, but I suspect with the crisis that's going on at home that he's taken a leave of absence that he's spending all his time trying to figure out how to help his daughter because there's certain things that are just more important than showing up to work. There's just the certain things that force us to make changes in our life and the desperation is kind of really high on the Richter scale. And he is making every single attempt that he can to help his little girl. And yet you can tell that he is getting extremely desperate because nothing's working. There's two critical issues that I think come out of this text. I believe that what the text reveals to us as we see these two particular stories that Mark gives to us in this scenario, that there are two things that have extremely high probability of creating desperation in our life. The first one is facing death. 
We live in a world that clearly doesn't know how to face death. The other one is long-term suffering. Now, there are lots of other things that create desperation in our life. We're all different. We all respond differently. There are some things that, that create desperation in some people's life that don't even phase others. So whatever it happens to be in your life is maybe very different than your spouse or someone else. But the, but the two objective realities that they're dealing with here is facing death and, and trying to deal with long-term suffering. And it creates two disturbing questions that come to our mind is that if life is this unfair and it's this hard and it's this debilitating where the new normal isn't about living life, it's about surviving pain and suffering, where's God in all this? I mean, that's the question that inevitably comes to the surface when you're dealing with this kind of thing, especially for God's children. But it's also a conversation we have with people in the world that don't know God at all And that is, how can a good God allow all this suffering going on? How can God allow life to be this unfair? I thought he was supposed to care for his children. I thought he was supposed to have our back. I mean, isn't what that Old Testament all about is that God would give them health and wealth and success and he would alleviate all these diseases? Isn't the New Testament say something like, He suffered for us so that we will be healed. By his stripes we are healed. Doesn't that give some implication that we shouldn't have to have physical suffering or mental suffering? And so what it does is it brings up in our mind not only the the, the issue of life and where we're living, but it, it can throw a shadow on our relationship with God because we start questioning, is he really good if he's allowing me to go through this kind of unfair hardship that's unsolvable, that's killing me and sucking the life out of me and my family. How do you answer that? Well, you'll probably know by now, I'm not so much a health and wealth person. I struggle a little bit with the health and wealth movement that says, hey, all you have to do is have enough faith and claim it, and God will do whatever you want. That it's, and we'll touch on that as we go through here a little bit. I don't know what this woman would have said. There's seven participles that describe her suffering. She had this ongoing hemorrhage. She had endured suffering. On top of the hemorrhage, had endured suffering at the hands of the physicians. She had spent all her money. She had been getting worse as time went on. But then as she's in this journey, she hears about this Jesus who's going around doing miracles and healing people. And every resource that they had, all of a sudden now in her mind, there's a flicker of hope. In Jairus' mind, he's exhausted. The physicians and every possible thing, maybe he's even prayed about. We have no idea what's gone on in their individual lives. But of all the things they've done, they've come to a point of complete hopelessness that nothing we're doing and nothing we could do is going to work and solve our problem. We're not gonna find comfort, we're not gonna find relief, we're not gonna find help, we're not gonna find solutions, we're not gonna find answers. And I would suspect that if you moved alongside these two people, their disparity is massive, and it's on the front lines of everything that they see in life. But then there's this hope. Jairus hears this person, Jesus, walking around doing things that nobody else can do, and he's healing people and freeing them from evil spirits. This woman 
explicitly hears about Jesus and all of a sudden her despair has a flicker of hope. That it's just possible. It's just possible but something could happen here. I want to pause for a second because I've mentioned it before but I want to just mention it again. We often have this theology that goes around where people make this claim that says God will never allow anything to happen to you that you can't handle. The clarification I will suggest to you is there's lots of things that happen to people, even Christians, that they're unable to handle. Now, if you're thinking about it, you might say, well, wait a minute. What about 1 Corinthians 10? Okay, we'll go there if you want to bring it up. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, follows 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 12, which is important in the context. But the basic statement says, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not allow you to be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape. So most people will quote this verse and say, well, see, there we are. God will never allow us to be tempted beyond what we're able. Now, if the first stop there, I would go, good. Then we're supposed to be able to handle it on our own. But he doesn't. Because at the point where we get to a point where we can't, aren't able to handle it, he steps in and he provides a way of escape that through the temptation we'll be able to endure it. In other words, we won't cave in to the things that Israel did in the first 12 verses. In the first 12 verses, there's a whole list of things that went on that are all related to the idea of doing evil. They desired evil, verse 6. They were idolaters in verse 7. They were indulging in the flesh. They would put God to the test and they were grumbling and complaining in verse 10. And so what the verse is saying is that God will never leave us as victims and helpless and that whenever we're facing temptation, he will move alongside of us and provide a way so that we don't cave in to those things. But personally, I'm really thankful he steps in because I usually screw it up if I'm trying to handle it on my own. But the other passage that's rather intriguing is 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8 and 9, where Paul is talking about being persecuted for the ministry of the gospel. And he makes this statement, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. And I want you to listen carefully to that. What Paul is saying is that we went through experience that we were not able to handle. It crushed the life out of us. In fact, they were so overwhelming and it went so beyond our ability to handle it that we literally felt we had the sentence of death. We were convinced that we were going to die. And so I, I think we have to be careful how we frame these ideas that we get from the Scripture is that there are times that there are things that happen to us that go way beyond our ability to handle it. Because if we could handle everything, then we wouldn't need Jesus. And it's those times that sometimes God does his greatest work when we, our own vulnerability and our finiteness and our weaknesses and our insecurities come to their limit 
because then we have to, in desperation, choose to surrender and rely on God to do things in our life that we should have been relying on all the time. But the danger is, when life is going well, we don't need him. It's easy to live life in such a way that God is there to help us only in the crisis and in the times of desperation, but otherwise, I got it. I'll let you know when I need you. Yeah, it's fine to go to doctors. That doesn't seem to be an abnormal, unspiritual thing to do. That's the normal process that people go to. We often get into those discussions. Well, why go to the physicians at all? Why don't you just pray and let God heal you? Well, these people weren't condemned because they went to the physicians. They weren't very helpful. In fact, they did more damage. And as we begin to think about this issue is, how desperate do we have to get before we really experience the power of God in our life? Henry David Thoreau makes this comment, the mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation. What is often called resignation is confirmed desperation. From the desperate city you go into the desperate country and have to console yourself with the bravery of minks and muskrats. I don't know what they have to do with anything, but anyway. It's his quote, not mine. I can't do anything about that, other than the fact that probably minks and muskrats show more courage than often we do. But A stereotype but unconscious despair is concealed even under what, we're, what are called the games and amusements of mankind. There is no play in them, for this comes after work, but it is a characteristic of wisdom not to do desperate things. We all face moments in life, and maybe even on a regular basis, where there's a twinge of despair. Maybe it's a twinge of discouragement or hopelessness or things that happen in our life that really rock our hearts and minds. And we're not quite sure what God has in mind and what he's doing because this seems unfair and it's very hard and I'm having a hard time carrying it, but somewhere in the midst of that, I'm gonna trust that God is with me and his fingerprints on this, but the question is, why doesn't he do something? Because it's hard not in our context to actually think of God as a concierge, that his whole purpose is to make life easier for us, which is pretty typical of American Christianity. God is there to serve me, not the other way around. I need God to fix my circumstances and fix my health. That's why I trusted him. Michael Cunningham, in his book, The Hours, quotes Laura Brown, who says this, there are times when you don't belong and you, don't think you're, and you think you're going to kill yourself. Once I went to a hotel, later that night I made a plan. The plan was I would leave my family and my second uh, when my second child was born. And that's what I did. I got up one morning, made breakfast, went to the bus stop, and got on a bus. I left a note got a job in a library in Canada, it'd be wonderful to say that you regretted it. It would be easy, but what does it mean? What does it mean to regret something when you have no choice? It's what you can bear. There it is, no one's going to forgive me. It was death and I chose life. That's desperation. That's desperation that some may feel like you've done the same thing, that you've had absolutely no choice, and the only avenue that I can see is going one direction, whether it's life or not. 
because we often do very strange things when it comes to feeling despair. But both Jairus and the woman had a glimmer of hope. In the midst of all the shortcomings of the physicians in life and their prayers and their religious practices and their hope and all the things that they were doing, in the midst of all that, there was Jesus. And rather than deal, in many ways, the only way to really deal with the hardship of life is the hope of the life giver. Desperation can create some reservations in our lives. We start asking questions about what's going on and why would God allow these things. Desperation is the state of despair, typically one in which results in rash or extreme behavior. Synonyms to it are agony, despondency, gloom, desolation, self-despair, depression, misery, sorrowfulness, or oppression. Some acts of desperation make sense. If we start feeling terrible, we get worried about that. You might not call it despair, but that's why we go see a physician. That's why we go and knock on their door, and regardless of the cost, we want to know what's going on. It's also the reason why people have stuff and they don't go to the doctor because they're afraid the doctor's gonna tell them something they don't wanna hear, so I'm just going to bottle this and I'm gonna live with it no matter how much it, it works in my life. And I don't know if that makes any sense because it's not gonna change just because you don't go and talk to the doctor about it. In fact, that's the only hope a person has to possibly dealing with it. But as we begin to work through this thing, they go to the physicians and it doesn't get anywhere, so it creates a redirection. The woman's redirection was simply, well, that physician didn't work, so I'm going to try this. Well, that one didn't work, so I'm going to try this. Well, that one guy didn't work, so I'm going to keep trying them, and for 12 years she'd been trying physicians and nothing worked. Now, sometimes our choices aren't quite redirected that way. We went to the doctor, and they couldn't give me anything, so maybe I'll take some drugs to help self-medicate. Or maybe I start doing other things that are kind of detrimental, but it's the only way to mitigate the pain. And sometimes what gets redirected creates more self-harm than help. Because sometimes when others help us, it doesn't do much good. Sometimes we try to help ourselves, it gets worse too. And yet we keep struggling internally and we stop asking for help because we don't think anyone can help us. No one gets what I'm really going through. And so it, it creates this redirection and it's surprising that it takes despair to get us to do things that we wouldn't normally do. <laughs> when I was growing up, there was a big movement between uh, the whole idea of cessational gifts and so on and so forth and we get people that would get cancer that would avowedly say, I don't believe in miraculous gifts existing anymore. But as they got more desperate in terms of their cancer, we would hear at times they would go in over to this church that believed in those things just in case it might happen to be right <laughs> for their particular situation. And, and what happens is, is that we sometimes even violate our own convictions when we get desperate enough because we're desperate enough. All of a sudden the differences don't matter. I'll do anything to stop the pain and the suffering. And yet, it's amazing how much it takes, how much desperation it takes for us to actually change. But then, in the midst of all of this, 
Jairus comes begging Jesus, and the language there, he is imploring Jesus earnestly because he loves his daughter. And Jesus says, great, I'll go with you, and they start going, and, and the crowds are kind of following him, and Jesus is being jostled, pushed, and touched by a lot of different people, and all of a sudden, Jesus stops, and he goes, whoa, wait a minute, who touched me? The disciples are going like, seriously, really? You got all kinds of people pushing and bumping into you and everything else. What are you talking about? He says, I felt power coming out of me. Well, that's a, this is a weird story. And all of a sudden, Jesus says, wait a minute, who touched me? And the woman just kind of goes like, oh, man, I'm doomed. I mean, I think the desperation would have gone up even for that because the moment she touched Jesus' cloak, God's, his power came in and healed her. She felt it, which would have bring her exaltation beyond reason except Jesus turns around and goes, wait a minute, who did that? And I think the desperation would have gone right off the charts again. That's I got found out. Oh, by the way, Jairus is over here going like, what are you stopping for? We haven't got time for this. And the power of Jesus touching someone's life almost creates more desperation in some of our lives because we think our matter is way more important than theirs. Jesus, this isn't fair. I've got it. My daughter is dying. Why are you stopping and talking to the crowds? This isn't fair. And what's amazing to this is that this woman who suffered so much, her desperation now opens the door for her to have a faith that in a sense is driven by her desperation because she knows there's no other way to get this solved. Only Jesus can meet her need. And she sneaks up behind him and reaches through the crowd and grabs his cloak and all of a sudden she experiences the power of God. And I want to make a general statement that sometimes the issue for us is not a lack of faith. It's a lack of desperation. You think about it, there's all kinds of people pushing and touching on Jesus. That's why the disciples were so confused by the statement, who touched me? But I'll tell you, there's all kinds of people in our world and Christians who are bumping into Jesus every day and never experiencing the power of Jesus to respond to their deepest needs because there's no desperation. They don't think they need Jesus. He's a really neat curiosity. I want to see him do some of his tricks and illusions, and it's really great if he can change the circumstances of someone else, but I don't need that. He's super entertaining, but I don't need him the way the woman needed him. And it's because of her desperation and the helplessness of her situation and her, the, the weight of the reality that nothing can help her except Jesus that becomes the catalyst for a life-changing faith experience with Jesus. I wonder if someone come and ask you, say, like, how has you been experiencing the power of Christ in your life? And how have you seen God at work in your life? And, and if you've got no answer for it, it's kind of like, well, I've been bumping into Jesus through my devotions and Bible reading and prayer thing, but nothing's going on. And I wonder if the, the issue isn't so much a lack of faith, but a lack of desperation, of seeing 
the desperation of our need to live in this intimate relationship with God and be totally surrendered to him on a daily basis, whether our circumstances drives us to desperation. The problem is, is you can't manufacture that. Well, you could if you walked up to someone and started beating them to a pulp, they would start getting desperate. But you can't manufacture desperation. You can't manufacture faith. It is what it is in some respects. Now, I realize that opens a whole can of worms. But I remember dealing with these conversations with people. You'll have some groups that that walk along and the claim is this. If you do not experience healing, then the problem is your lack of faith. I don't know if you've ever run into people like this, but they're pretty ferocious about it. They think everyone should be healed. We shouldn't have any physical, mental problems. And that, that if you really have the faith, and the basis of it is a passage like this that Jesus says, your faith has made you well. So there's, in a sense, something to the statement. But the only one who experienced life-changing faith was the woman at this point in the story. Not everybody else who's been bumping into Jesus because there's nothing desperate enough in their life where they go, Jesus, I need you. And what I'm often concerned about, that maybe we don't live our lives looking through the lens of how desperate our lives really are. How much we desperately need to be walking with the Spirit of God every single day. How much that we ought to be on our knees in intimate relationship with God so that we might know know the mind of Christ. So that we might know as we bow our knees before the Father that what he says about us and our identity as being children of God and forgiven it needs to start outweighing the desperation of the lies that you believe in your life, in your head, that I'm worthless and I can't make a difference and I'm no good and I spend all your life comparing yourself to other people. You know, it's the same thing with the gospel. You can share the gospel with people till the cows come home, and if they don't feel the desperation of their own sin, they're not going to believe in Jesus. You can't manufacture that. It's like the woman in Canada, the Spirit of God has to do a work in their heart that breaks through the hardness of what we're trying to carry and opens up our spirit to the reality that there's hope, but that hope is in Jesus. See, because when you think about it, the only real solution to facing death is Jesus. Because he's the only one that died and was buried and rose from the dead. He's the only one that's ever conquered death. And so our desperation in trying to figure out how to deal with death relies in the life giver, the one who gives life, who transfers us from death to life, from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. How do we deal with evil and suffering in our lives? Again, I think Jesus is the only solution, but he's not a concierge that just makes everything go away. He's a living savior that can help forge us into the image of Christ, even through a life that sometimes feels on fire that's very hard and sometimes feels debilitating. That's a tricky subject. 
I'm not pretending to answer all the questions that surface on something as significant and as powerful as when we get into desperate circumstances, we end up making desperate choices. My encouragement to you is that are you making a, out of your desperation and the frustration and the hopelessness of whatever you happen to be facing, are you doing what Jairus and the woman did, and that is, are you moving to Christ, or are you moving away from him? There's a lot more to say about this particular text, and we're going to do that over the next couple of weeks. But I want to give you some encouragement that no matter how lost or overwhelmed or how desperate your situation, I don't want to turn into a counselor to help you try to manage your pain. I want to point you to Jesus who can do something that I can't for your desperation, your anxiety, the hopelessness. But the rest of us who kind of feel like, well, life's pretty good, One of the great dangers we face is we can bump into Jesus all day long and never experience the power of Christ because we're pretty good all by ourselves. Walk has a lot of pitfalls and landmines in it. I don't need them, I do need them. I need them, I don't need them. Are you desperate enough this morning to see the weight of your life and the sin that God forgives so that you might live in this absolute dependence and surrender, walking by the Spirit of God and embracing the presence and the power of Jesus in your life so that we can talk about how he sees us through our pain and our suffering and our dysfunction. And even when it comes to life and death issues, we can trust in him. Father, thank you.